News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Katie Honan, now of the city. Hello. Hi. And Alex Brooklyn, as ever, of the village. Hello. Well, hello. Hey. Professor Christina Greer is enjoying the end of the summer. And in a bit, we're going to be joined by Stephen Rosenbaum and Pamela Yoder, the husband and wife documentarians who got extensive access to the 9-11 Museum and Memorial as it was getting built and opening and ended up producing a striking and quite critical documentary called The Outsider that's screaming now and in theaters. So it's 20 years later now, about to be, this war in Afghanistan is ending and uh, not the way I, I think anyone exactly wanted it to. And I've just been thinking back a lot about what things were like in the uh, the weeks and months afterward uh, for those of us who were in New York, which I believe includes all three of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the footage of people leaving Afghanistan is eerily and devastatingly reminiscent of the footage of 9-11 that, of course, like played over and over again everywhere on every news station. Um, so as like it being 20 years later, it's just very weird. I'm almost 40. I was almost 20 then. Um, I worked as a volunteer from, for the Salvation Army. It was just very strange. They apparently let Harry and I just, uh, just like, it it was, there was no rhyme or reason to people who were down there. We got a plastic lanyard basically and got in the back of an open pickup truck and like, okay, you know get to work there's wow. a lot to be done um I, I will say because i missed all the footage in 2001 because i was down there and then i didn't want to watch tv really afterward but it is striking to see that 20 years later the let's just repeat this footage over and over again thing is still happening i happen to have cnn on and i don't think this was just cnn it's just what i was watching and they were showing the the footage of the dot that we then found out was a 17 year old soccer player falling off of a uh, of a rising U.S. cargo plane, I think seven times in an hour, like basically on a loop. And that sort of repetition, I think, is really striking and traumatic. And then, of course, over time, these images fade for a lot of people, which gets us sort of back to this film and what it's like 20 years later. And for people who didn't experience this at the time necessarily, maybe my kids when they're just a little older, when they start seeing and engaging with this for the uh, for the first time, Kitty, were you in New York uh, on yeah. 9-11? Yeah, I know. It's funny. That's just one of those questions that came up often. Yeah, I grew up in Queens, so I was in. I'm 35, so I was 15 at the time and in high school. And yeah, you know, for me, because I was so far away from physically where it happened, but the neighborhood I grew up in Rockway Park happened to have a very large concentration of, we found out later, people who died there. Um, that was the beginning of a real change in where I grew up and people's perceptions. Um, and yeah, it, it, it was to experience that at such a young age. I mean, not super young, but I was I was old enough to understand, but at the same time still be 
grappling with what was going on. And, and I think for me, having distance physically and then also, you know, wh- why would I be upset about anything? My parents didn't die. I wasn't there. So there's like the, the hierarchy of victims in the city when you have to realize, no, what you went through and what you experienced was was horrible, however you experienced it. Um, I always think of this, and it's a brief story, but I always think when was the first time, you know, in the 20 years since the September 11th attacks have been used and misused for a lot of things, whether big or small, whether it's, you know, a war or, I don't know, excuses for things. And it was late September. My high school had a, a fundraiser every year and me and my friends got busted for bringing, I didn't bring alcohol in, but a friend did. And we were drinking beforehand at my parents' house. Sorry, mom and dad. And the assistant principal, when I was in her, you know, room, she said, how could you do all this? And so soon after 9-11. And I remember 15 thinking, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> look, if anything, shouldn't you be saying, look, I get it. You want to drink the Malibu and Gatorade, whatever god-awful mixture you make at 15 years old. But that was ingrained in my memory, the first and certainly not the last of this, how could you do that? And so, so after 9-11, what does that have to do? That was sitting in the classroom, you know, I think I was crying because I was getting suspended and just thinking like, in my head, probably like, what? Bitch, what does that have to do with anything? It reminds me now when I see all these like uh, very senior or very rich village residents like pearl clutching during the shutdowns at teenagers who have been locked in their house or like can't really uh, congregate anywhere, can't go to school, skateboarding in an empty Washington Square Park, right? And going like, how could they all be out here hanging out with each other without masks? Don't they understand? It's like they are 15, they're 14, they're 15, they're like a giant chunk of their formative years are out the window, of course they're going to hang out and maybe, like, I don't know, have their first kiss or joint or learn how to ride a skateboard. Right. Like, they don't... It, it's... You have to allow, in certain instances, for life, especially... I love teens. I think they're awesome. I think it's the best time in anyone's life. Um, but uh, maybe not. I don't know. I haven't... <laughs> I haven't been through all my life. But, uh, but yeah, it's I, just I very I teenage Alex, but I, I am not going to fact check that. I will say um, <laughs> it was October 3rd of 2001 when uh, The Onion, which was then a fine print publication <laughs> people look forward to picking up a copy of every week, put forth uh, the iconic headline, A Shattered Nation Longs to Care About Stupid Bullshit Again. <laughs> and, of course, there are people who many years later that still isn't true for. But for many people who weren't directly involved who, you know, saw this happen, uh, you know, from the, outside their windows in Queens or from a rooftop or from somewhere else in the country uh, where they were living and did not have a direct connection that kept coming up. Um, and th- there was this long pause before we could think about other things. Then, of course, we did start thinking about stupid bullshit again, um, got involved in one and then two wars, uh, uh, second one you know, damaging the first, and and, and, and here we are. Um, one other group that, that, that sort of benefited from this heroism in certain ways was was first responders, and I think particularly police officers, and to some extent in things like contract negotiations, because there was this incredible and really deserved aura of heroism about what they'd just done, and people appreciating the bravery of that work in ways they hadn't prior to that point. 
Um, and that trickled down into the zeitgeist in weird ways, like uh, people on the street yeah. corner, instead of saying 5050, saying like heroes, heroes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think the reckoning we've been having about police reform now is in some ways uh, like a, a, a delayed or, or, you know, a spring back reaction to that that long period where, where there was an incredible uh, aura around uh, these sorts of work. Yeah. I can, I'll just say about the, I've never been to the 9-11 Museum. I don't think I'll ever go to the 9-11 Museum. Harry and I worked at the New York Sun, which was on Chambers Street in the years uh, directly after 9-11. And I, I got a resp- you know, in a strange way, the people that were out there right away with kind of like Xerox photos of the Twin Towers, selling them to tourists in the year after, in the day, weeks after, um, I almost respect them more than I respect the museum in certain ways. Like they had a hustle for a purpose, a hustle for like small sums of money. Tourists wanted these pamphlets. Whereas this museum, as we'll hear in the interview coming up, uh, it, it just felt more genuine and more New York than trying to have this for-profit uh, museum like somehow integrated into this very fraught and very long coming memorial. I mean, do you remember that hole in the ground that just sat there for years and years and years while the LM, uh, the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation twiddled their dick, twiddled their thumbs? Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let me let me use this as a transition. In two thousand one, Rudy Giuliani asked for an additional ninety days in office, which people were really distressed about a whole number of ways. I still suspect that we could have actually had a much faster rebuilding if that had happened. Uh, Mike Bloomberg, when he comes in, spends his first term on this Olympics dream for the far west side. It's not accidental. It's in a different location in the city, in part because the the, the traumatic feelings around downtown and ground zero were so strong. And Andrew Cuomo, of course, was running for the first time for governor and uh, famously sniped that uh, George Pataki was just the guy holding Rudy Giuliani's coattails. And he knew even then, a decade before, almost a decade before he'd actually be elected himself, that he never wanted to be the guy holding the coattails, that he always wanted to be the alpha dog. And for a bunch of reasons, that seems to have caught up to him. And as a result, we have, at least for less than 10 months, the uh, first woman ever to be the governor of New York, uh, Kathy Hochul, and she is uh, starting to um, introduce herself to New Yorkers to make an impression and to uh, prepare to both govern and to run again uh, or, and to run for governor for the first time. She's run for lieutenant governor all at the same time. Uh, Katie, can you just fill us in on uh, what Hochul is doing and what she's looking ahead to at this point? Well, the news hot off the Twitter presses, because we're not dealing with print presses right now, is that uh, she will... Multiple people reported that she has uh, selected Brian Benjamin um, for her lieutenant governor. So he is a state senator, represents Harlem. She lost, as as a lot of people pointed out, she lost very badly to Jemani Williams in the last election in Harlem. And she had said, you know, for weeks that she wants to bring on someone from downstate, as we call it. We don't want to get into that upstate, downstate debate, but New York City. So... That's that. And, you know, from her swearing in in her speech yesterday, it was a good introduction to the New Yorkers who don't know who she is. She promised to speed up foils. That was maybe pandering to the reporters. She's vowed to get rid of anyone involved in anything unethical with 
Governor Cuomo, former Governor Cuomo's administration. And I, I think for a lot of people, they want a little bit of calm. You know, the past year and a half, you had COVID, you had this alpha governor, uh, Andrew Cuomo, and you had this incredible buildup and then an incredible, not too swift, but the, his downfall. So I'm sure your run-of-the-mill New Yorker just wants a governor who will not be on TV every day, because I don't know if it's necessary right now. Someone who will just govern and legislate and figure out what's going on. She's talked about distributing rental assistance. Um, she's day one, she added, the. there's been that discrepancy with the number of COVID deaths over how Governor Cuomo's administration was counting them. She's changed that. Now there's a larger death count in New York, including the nursing home deaths and others. So I think she's bringing in some change um, superficially at this point. Who knows? But that is sort of day one of her. Uh, I guess, no, now we're in day two. What day is it? Today's Wednesday. But yeah, the first week. Didn't um, She did say that she was going to uh, strengthen the New York eviction ban, especially in the wake of um, yes. the Supreme Court kind of eviscerating the federal eviction ban due to, you know, not allowing uh, declarations of hardship, which is enjoined with a whole bunch of other tenant protections. So yeah. the whole thing gets thrown out. Um, so that's that's something that's promising, especially when so many people are questioning where she's going to go on housing and homelessness. Um, because, you know, she has just like a spotty, yeah. a spotty and, uh, and um, not incongruous, but uh, inconsistent history with housing and homelessness, especially with uh, ties to like what Buffalo um, Niagara project and her husband and her, a lot of her donations coming from big real estate throughout the state and whatnot. I mean, we'll, we'll have to see what happens. How downstate is she? Yeah. Katie, I've got one more question for, for you here. Um, another thing that happened because of nine 11 is what had been, a break glass, once in a generation, emergency Republican mayor and conservative mayor in New York and Rudy Giuliani ended up becoming 20 years of non-democratic mayors between Giuliani and Bloomberg. Cuomo, who presents himself as very much a Democrat, in some ways the heart of the party, but was forced to resign because he lost all support from other Democrats, is out now and in his farewell address he gave at the end of the two weeks he gave himself in office after announcing his resignation, he sort of said a lot about how the uh, socialists are coming, my term, uh, but but his formulation, I think, the socialists are coming from New York and in terms of uh, policing, in terms of taking too much from the, uh, the rich in a way that's going to damage the rest of us. Hochul's from Western New York, which is more conservative. Mm -hmm. She was more conservative as a local palm, but the center yeah. of the party is clearly moving leftward, including in the state legislature. Do you think that she's going to be a uh, a check against some of that, um, even if a kinder and less aggressive one? Is she going to be inclined to work with the legislature in this one legislative season and budget she has uh, before voters decide whether she deserves a full term. Like, do, do you have any sense of that from what she's uh, said so far over these last two weeks and now two days as governor? Yeah, I would say in in what she has said and in speaking with people who know her not incredibly well, but well enough, she is at least open to changing and she doesn't come into these negotiations with that same kind of aggressiveness that Governor Cuomo possibly has. 
she is more moderate um, than some of the people in the state legislature and some of the people coming into the New York City Council, for example. But I also think, you know, what Governor Cuomo, the party seems to be moving left, but it's a little bit slower. And I do think there's still, when it comes to who turns out to vote on election day, at least in New York City, it, it tends to be a little bit more moderate Democrats. So she might be at this point, even though there is that leftward motion for the party, she's representing a lot more of the, at least the people who come out and vote. But yeah, I'm sure it won't, we're in the honeymoon period and I'm sure she'll start butting heads with people soon enough, but at least it's just a much calmer force in the governor's mansion. Um, you know, there's not as much of that aggression. She did. She she called herself a Biden Democrat. And as my dad uh, says about Biden and Biden right. Democrats, like milk toast, it's what the country needs. They need milk toast is, is how he put it. Um, but she did. Uh, what was I reading? I forget who, but she like took some photo with a DSA candidate from upstate, you know, everything above 14th Street. And uh, um, so that was included in some like coverage <laughs> of her that I read. Uh, I thought I, I was surprised to hear when you said um, that a lot of people were tired of Cuomo on TV. I was surprised to see not only some of the comments, but some people I know actually talking about how at the time he provided uh, like the kind of uh, loud um, opposite oh, yeah. to what Trump was saying. Right. He provided that other side in a way that Biden wasn't because Biden was a little more, a lot more reserved. And so Cuomo could be this like loud talking back talk to like the Trump camp. And I was surprised that a lot of, a lot of people I know felt that way. No. Yeah. No, I, I don't mean to say that people are sick of him on TV because he certainly has a lot of these fans who love that steady, constant, consistent presence that he had, especially during COVID. So, you know, in a lot of ways he earned that Emmy, even though he had to give it back. Um, for just his presence there. So going from uh, one trauma with COVID uh, to another, let's jump right into this interview with the makers of The Outsider. <laughs> Steve and Pam, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Uh, to start with, can you just tell us a little bit about the, uh, the history of The Outsider and how you ended up with this remarkable access, and then about the, uh, the the film as it came out and uh, the stages it went to in, in getting there. Obviously, when you're shooting over years, there are different projects running through your mind uh, in the course of that. Well, well, let's just start with one thing to be very clear. The film we ended up making is not the film we started out making. And we believe the museum that got built was not the museum they started out to build. Um, the short version is we arrived to make a film about the construction of the museum and the curation of the museum. And over the course of seven years, six and a half years, we shot 670 hours of material. We had complete unfettered access. And when we sat down to edit it, um, it was really harder than we thought it was going to be. It was difficult. And part of it was that the film doesn't have a happy ending. Uh, and well, we didn't so yeah. just to interrupt, Steve, I mean, part of the, the challenge was that we realized that there was a, um, a, a disparity between the museum that they had also outlined that they were going to build and the museum 
they actually built. And it took us a while to kind of realize that, like, why, you know, why, why isn't this coming together? And so we had to kind of go back and examine more of the footage to kind of figure out where, you know, cause we didn't set out to um, make a particular type of film. We it's a longitudinal documentary. So we followed it um, as the construction happened. So it wasn't that we were, um, uh, in charge of the story, we were following the story. And so we, it kind of took us a little bit to be, understand that this is, uh, this was the direction the story was taking us in. And, and, you know, part of it is as we were starting to put it together, we would say to friends of ours, well, have you been to the museum? And, you know, we asked that question of New Yorkers maybe a hundred times. And the answer 99 times was no. And the one time that it was yes, it was, well, my relatives were in from out of town and they really wanted to go. So I went with them, but I'll never go again. And we're like, okay, we're making a film about a museum that either no one that we know has ever gone to or will ever go to again. So like as a filmmaker challenge, it's like saying to an author, write a book about a, about a story that has a terrible ending and make people care enough to take the journey with you. And that's how the Michael Shulin story emerged. Yeah, and the other thing that we uh, have been aware of since the day of 9-11, when we ended up uh, ultimately collecting this archive of footage called the Camera Planet Archive, is that um, this isn't about our generation or the next generation, which has already come about, or even the following. We really, since the beginning, have framed this in terms of our children's children and beyond. You know, when you, when you think about... Um, someone who's under the age of 20, um, you know, they, they weren't there that day. I mean, most of us probably remember, but um, what is the relevance for them about this? To them, it's like, you know, old history, <laughs> you know, even though well, to me, it seems like yesterday. So, um, so the film is definitely part of uh, the um, idea of looking further down the road rather than right now. So, so th this podcast has a habit of starting in the middle and uh, sometimes working our way to the beginning and, and the end. Uh, maybe can you two just just briefly convey and obviously you have to see the film to get the full scope of this, the uh, the, the the narrative of the film as it finally came out. Well, I'll start with a brief self-serving promo, which is we just this morning found out that the film is now available for download on iTunes. Mm. Uh, and so your listeners can essentially watch it for themselves and then, you know, tweet out at us and beat us up if they think we did a bad job or, you know, add their own comments or their own stories. Um, but, you know, I, and, and at the risk of angering fellow New Yorkers, um, I would argue gently that maybe it's all of our fault that the museum is so terrible. Um, you know, New York is the in capital of intelligentsia. Every writer, every author, every thinker, I mean, not the only place on the planet, but we, we over-index on people who like to think. And, and New Yorkers, I think, have given the story of 9-11 uh, and the museum as a result a pass. They've said, oh, too close to home. Don't want to write about that. Too hard to watch. Too we I lived through it. You know, remember all and, and I would argue to your listeners who are hopefully part of that community that it's time for us to own it 
and be critical of it and ask what the hell happened 20 years ago and not just wave around, never forget banners and then move on. It's funny, just before we started recording this, uh, Katie and Alex and I were talking about how in the years after 9-11, the groups that like very bravely stepped up then had this uh, sort of tremendous aura of heroism around everything they did when it was warranted and when not, when it wasn't. So this came up obviously in uh, like contract negotiations in general perceptions. Alex was remembering like 2002, 2003, you know, uh, people open air selling drugs, which there used to be more of here before the internet. And instead of being like five Oh five Oh, they'd be like hero hero. Meaning the, uh, the, the police were coming. Yeah. And yep. I do think that in some ways the the police reform wave of recent years is almost uh, or, or is in some ways a, a, a response to that and to this, this built up credit that got banked and, and then eventually and, spent. And by the way, you know, we're sitting here looking at this horrible news coming out of Afghanistan and it's worth asking the question, how did we get here 20 years later? Well, we know the answer to that. We you know, we kind of let this forever war thing just roll around in the background without asking questions about why we went to Afghanistan, why we're in Afghanistan, and now why we're leaving Afghanistan. And I would argue that the museum should have been the place where that question was asked. Uh, I didn't mean to get so worked up, but it's on my mind. No, it makes sense. Um, if I can just chime in, just for the listeners, because Harry and I saw it and I thought it was great, and the one thing that I really took away from it is, wow, this was an impossible task on every front. Building, it's not something that I would want to take on, and maybe that's part of the failure of a New Yorker, just not wanting to be involved in it, but what do you, what do you think, just ask what you want people to take away from watching it, but when, when, you, when you have people watching your film, when they download it on iTunes and you get, <laughs> and you get that, you know, what do you hope they, they see in it uh, that, that you were trying to get through? Well, let me absolve you of that guilt for just one second. <laughs> maybe it shouldn't have been built is the answer. If it was so impossible and if, you know, maybe New York at that site under, I mean, originally that site underground, the pools was supposed to be a parking garage. But that you know what, plan. Steve, but, but really the, the bottom line uh, to, for a viewer to take out of it is that the, this one person, there were actually, there was a, another character who also spoke up, but. Michael Shulin, our protagonist, who I call our antagonist, um, <laughs> was the one that was willing to push back. He kept pushing back and saying, we're, we're locking down this story. You know, it's supposed to be a museum of questions, not a museum of complete answers. And um, that's the battle that um, plays out throughout the film. So the takeaway is even, even the amount of um, kind of duress he was under, he kept fighting all the way to the end and he was right and and well we feel like he was right um but the um the narrative that's there has been fossilized for 20 years and you know i i again i want i want to see more dynamic i wish that the younger generations could kind of kick in and say oh i understand that it's it's more than just about the building of the museum it's about free speech and discourse um, and kind of the things that make us American. So, or we hope still make us American. But, but maybe if that museum had been in Long Island City, 
I'm not saying it shouldn't have been built necessarily, but maybe maybe the 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 challenges of trying to be supportive of the families and Harry, to your point, this aura of heroes, and we get thrown in our face a lot. This phrase, sacred space, yeah. and it's used kind of like a weapon, like oh, can't talk about that sacred space, sacred space, and like yes, it's a terrible story. Three thousand New Yorkers and people from around the world died there, but don't we have an obligation? to now figure out the larger questions about America's place in the world. And, and it's worth remembering, uh, this, was, this is now me going back in ancient history. Originally on the site, there was supposed to be built this thing called the Freedom Center. And it was a museum, but it was really about the question of freedom and democracy. And that got killed or squashed. And then the 9-11 Memorial and Museum was the replacement for that. So. The, the criticism of the film I've heard, I thought was interesting, right? So, so if Michael is the protagonist here, that, that would make Alice Greenwald, who's the uh, chief executive of the museum and came from the Holocaust Museum, I think, the antagonist. Uh, and Michael wants a place that's going to ask questions. Alice wants a place that's going to answer them. Is that the, the, the film's criticism, as I see it, is, is that the, the museum is freezing a narrative. And you can feel that, and by the way, the way in which they, they, they fought against the release of this film, tried to edit parts of it beforehand, which they didn't really have the rights to do, make people sign agreements so that they can't see any of the uh, materials that are held there, including many that were donated by the two of you, uh, video materials, uh, uh, unless the, the museum gets and memorial gets to see their work first, but that the film in its own way is freezing a narrative and that this is all very difficult. You have these living stakeholders, including the family members. Um, it's, it's a museum and a memorial that all those parts are, are complicated and difficult. And in telling a, a, a story that, that is both a documentary, but, but I, I think narratively very critical of the uh, decisions she's making. And maybe Michael Bloomberg is helping to make who, who is the uh, effectively the main funder of this museum, and of course, was the mayor of New York. Uh, that here too, that stuck. And where I get stuck is what exactly a more open question-asking museum would look like—one um, that did would draw in New Yorkers. So, as you were saying that, I couldn't help but think. And this, I'm now officially dating myself, but it's a dessert. It's a floor wax and a dessert topic. It's an old Saturday Night Live skit. Great, I, uh, but no, the the, the the museum and memorial thing don't re, have you know go against each other in ways that are very complicated. Um, and let's talk about Bloomberg for a second um, because he's invisible in the film. He shows up once or twice. We tried to interview him a number of times. It was almost scheduled, but never quite happened. If you go way back into the archives, you know Michael Bloomberg before construction began said. Um, I don't want to look backwards. I want. I think there should be a school on the site. And what you hear kind of now in feedback we're getting is, you know, the names of the victims, the names of the people who lost their lives were supposed to be underground. He didn't want anything in that big piece of lower Manhattan to look like a cemetery. He wanted it to look like a park. And the family sued to get the names brought up above ground. But the museum itself 
is essentially invisible. And I think that from an economic development standpoint, you know, which is Michael Bloomberg, Mayor Michael Bloomberg's, you know, worldview was how do we get those buildings filled and how do we get that place to not feel forever frozen in time? He made a good economic development decision, which was let's make the museum and the memorial as invisible as possible. I'm just not sure that was good for America. The other, the other thing that came up, and this is after we um, completed the film and we did some select screenings um, with family members, with uh, Muslim scholars, uh, and with other museum curators. And what we ended up finding, um, particularly we were surprised with the families we spoke with, they want this out. They want, they, they want more transparency. They don't feel uh, like that has to remain a closed space. They want it to be more open. So it was it was surprising to us to kind of hear from them directly. So if I could just ask, you know, since you were there throughout, and I know you said when you started this project, it was a much different project than what you finished with, which is where that tension comes in with the museum. Were there any points uh, throughout the filming of it where you shifted your thinking of things or um, anything else that surprised you as you were recording these meetings in this process that we see in the film of the tension over to play an eight minute voice message or phone call with a 911 operator that ends up not getting in the museum and the reasons why and that, and that tension of what gets included and what doesn't. So, you know, Philip Kennicott from the Washington Post wrote a pretty scathing review of the museum in 2014. And we interviewed him for the film um, and his feelings hadn't changed much. I don't think we knew that the museum was gonna be so dark and overwhelming and immersive in essentially until we went there opening day. I mean, the, the closing of the walls, the darkening of the space, the kind of drumbeat of horror and, and, and you know, kind of a, a sense of belligerence and anger and nationalism. Well, and it, feeling trapped, by the way. Yeah. There's not really easy exits if you want to kind of bail on the exhibit. Someone compared it to Ikea, like, you know, how do you <laughs> get out? <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, you know, tra trapped in but, the kitchenwares area. Um, but I yeah. think we didn't, part of what was so hard, well, we should maybe tell the story of how this version of the film happened. So I, I sat down with the material the day after opening day and started trying to edit. And after about three weeks of struggling, I said to Pam, I can't do this. We're, we're, and I took a year off. I was like, this is too hard. And I figured, you know, we worked for six years, we'll take a year off. And then I went back to it and we started looking at it again and we still couldn't find it like there wasn't and part of it was this unhappy well, ending part of, i was i i was surprised yeah for me too it was like wait this isn't you know why what what has happened in the storyline here because when we were capturing bits and pieces it wasn't as apparent as when we started to lay out the narrative uh, so, and then it started to make more sense about what was oh, wait, going wait, on this is the pam heroic story i love telling this so pam oh, really? comes <laughs> yeah after two and a half years pam comes to me with this little tape and she says, I think this might be it. And it was from the original archive and it was the story of Michael Shulin and the Here is New York photo exhibit. And we, did, I didn't know we had, and she's like, this is the beginning of the film. And I'm like, and you know, when you, when you work making films or writing, you really only need three things, right? A beginning, a middle and an end. And then you're, it's all good. So we had a begin, we knew, yeah, simple. So we knew we well, had seeing, a beginning. But seeing Michael Shulin 
back then. I mean, he was effusive. He was, he was kind of lit up. He was not the person we saw at the end of the museum process um, of building the museum. So, so, the, it so was then we laid that, just a New York guy at this point, right? Yeah. And he collects yeah. all these photographs and displays them uh, in, in this small commercial space. And it becomes right. a big deal. And people come there to see it who want to it was a crowdsourced. Yep, crowdsourced um, picture exhibition. People brought the sub, pictures. The, the democracy of photographs. A democracy of photographs. So, yeah. so when people say, you know, did he change whatever? Did Alice not know what she was getting into with him? He he wore his heart on his sleeve. He hasn't changed one iota. But so then we laid out. We we we've interviewed our five characters every year over six years, and so we had about fourteen hours of interviews with Shulin on tape. And we laid them out end to end. And that was the first time we saw the film because like you could feel him go. First, he was like excited and a little cautious. And then he was like saying, well, I'm I'm still here because I'm still here. It was like you could feel him. And then he got combative and angry. And then by the end, he was disillusioned. And I'm like, OK, well, and, and the that's the they brought him into the museum. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so he. He, he he's this guy. He does the, this exhibit. He's not a museum person, by the way. He has no museum background whatsoever. Sure. But Alice but, knew that, and to her credit, she wanted to build a team that was more rounded. You know, she right. brought him there on purpose. So, Presumably. I mean, that that <laughs> she uh, did. <laughs> uh, you know, but 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 here's, I guess, the thing that, that you asked the question. You know. Uh, Katie, that I, I don't want to duck, which is, you know, I don't think the museum's trajectory is over. I don't think that, I don't think that as New Yorkers, we need to say, there's this place in lower Manhattan, it's kind of icky, we're never going to go there, maybe our family will come in out, out of town, but we're, it's, we're glad it's underground because we're not ever going to, first of all, like, here's, here's a simple message to Michael Bloomberg. There is no reason on God's green earth that New Yorkers should have to pay $26 to go to that museum. Yeah, they, they could fix that with the stroke of a pen. And, and New Yorkers aren't going to pay. We're never going to pay for that museum. And the, and, the diff, and, and, the, and the museum, if you look at the math of it, is other than the COVID you know, decimation of visitors, is wildly profitable. Well, it's a for-profit museum. Yeah. It's the, um, what is it, the only for-profit museum? What Go Tom ahead. Hennis says is, it's the only museum he's aware of in the world that is both private and needs to make its entire budget on ticket sales. Tom Hennis was the lead exhibition designer for the museum who uh, came in, uh, quit at one point, came back to see things through, and then left again, who's also in the film. Yeah, so Alice hires another design firm on top of him. And, you know, it's it's a little, you know, it, when when somebody hires someone on top of you to do the design work, it's time to leave. Um, and it came down to he felt that the place was getting, uh, you know, he kept saying, we don't want to re-traumatize visitors. And in the end, I think they ended up doing that. Now, Tom's just a wonderful, brave, thoughtful, caring designer. And he both he and Michael really thought they were building something that would be a thoughtful place that would strengthen democracy. And as it becomes less of that, he becomes more disillusioned. 
You said earlier, Pam, that maybe this is for, you know, the story of 9-11. It's told for not our, for our children's children, right, down the line. So I think of that with the museum. I've never been. I'm a native New Yorker. I, I, I don't have any interest in going. Um, maybe that's my own fears, and I'm not alone in that. But I think, is there a usefulness for my nephew, who's six, or for other people, or for the future generation? Because we all experience it so personally, wherever we were, however way we did it. But obviously, this is an important story about the United States, our role in the world, our role in things and all that. So what do you see its its legacy, not in the near future, but in the future future? Well, one of the characters in the film, Jan Ramirez, who's amazing, um, talked took a moment to talk about the fact that all those art, the big artifacts were going to be there. But in the future, you know, the place should look completely different. I mean, she imagined, she said, no one's going to remember our names, but you know, the, the museum's going to be here. And that is um, what the, a retool that can make it um, tell that story about what changed in our, 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 the country's, you know, um, kind of participation in what's happened in the last 20 years is definitely what also for us was important to tell as well. So, um, you know, I think uh, the the changes that may happen, you know, coming forward, one of the things we heard a lot, too, was the Parks Department taking over the memorial on the ground level, which is the pools and the trees and that kind of plaza area. Because one of the other things that's um, really kind of shocking that we have learned since the movie was completed is that um, there is, you know, tremendous restrictions about shooting anything, uh, shooting video or stills on the plaza, um, protesting, singing, uh, you know, reading poetry, reading poetry. (laughs) Where else in the city of New York, if you went to Central Park and got a little soapbox and wanted to read poetry or protest or like, yes, you couldn't bring a crowd without getting a permit. But as an individual, you're free. But but there's actually another thing going on, which I'm not sure anyone knows about, which is the museum is now under such extraordinary budget restraints that they are shutting off the pools at night. They were supposed to be they on canceled 24/7. most of the 20th anniversary um, uh, events they had scheduled. The, the pools at night are beautiful because of their, the way they're lit. That's part of their architectural design. The bulbs are now, you know, 20 years old and are starting to re- expire. I'm told that they are not going to replace the bulbs because they can't afford it. I mean, Federal properties, federal museums, the Smithsonian doesn't, you know, not replace the light bulbs. You know, how this place called national is national. And the keeper of the 9-11 story, right? You know, it's, but I mean, Harry, we should, we we should talk about kind of what happened after the film, because that's maybe the most startling to us. Yes, please. So we finished the film. We had an obligation to show it to the museum. They were reviewing it for security and and safety, and and you know they didn't want a disparagement. And you know we knew they were. We thought they were going to complain about the fact that Lou Mendes curses. We thought they were going to complain about some kind of you know we don't like. They came back with this Mendes, laundry list of just complaints. Very quickly, Lou Mendes. We I don't think we mentioned up till now. Uh, was the construction boss, in effect, uh, yeah. for, for the museum project. I believe Katie knows him from uh, Sandy work. Yeah, when he left uh, the museum to course. go to Build-A-Back. 
and he was the same way and, and the people really and you know i he did a great job with that or as another impossible job yeah no no he's yeah, an amazing, no, he's an amazing guy um, <laughs> but he's you know he's got the new york accent and he yells <laughs> so. and he's he's big and a little scary but 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 the, museum's, re yeah. the museum's reaction to the film was you know it would be like me saying you know hey you know your house is great but can you just remove the doors and the windows and the floor <laughs> and the plumbing like there was nothing left when they were done eviscerating it and and we thought maybe it's personal maybe it's because alice doesn't like michael as the title character maybe it's something but what we've since found is no this is actually kind of how they treat everybody um it's anti-free speech anti-journalism anti-academia anti-scholarly research and and it's not accidental it's it's part of the dna of the place um, well we should take one step back steve and explain so after the day of 9-11 um we had accumulated this archive of 500 hours of footage of the day of 9-11 and the six days that followed it was a film we made called seven days in september um we uh were looking for a home for this archive and we kept getting calls uh, from an organization before even the museum and memorial started to be built. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we were still considering what we wanted to do. And finally, um, Steve uh, had taken a school trip with our younger son to Ellis Island and saw the landscape from Ellis Island of Lower Manhattan without the towers. And then he realized that is the spot that the um, archive should be available to scholars and should be part of the exhibition so we the way we got the access to make this film was we made the donation of the video archive um, as the founding archive actually and in return we got the access to make the the film that we you know have finished now for the 20th anniversary so. but we didn't know until a month and a half ago when a young doctoral student reached out to us and said you know that if you want to see your material at the museum you have to sign this piece of paper that says they review your work they get to approve it they can re-edit it they control it i'm like no that can't be right like you, yeah. you must have misread no, that, that was shocking yeah um and it's actually on the museum website anyone who wants to do scholarly research needs to give them editorial control of your of your work and and, and that's not that, what they told us when we donated the archive they had said there was going to be a lending library that there would be scholarly research um that it would be open so that was uh you know not in terms of what we were uh, expecting in terms of our material having it locked away underground was not the purpose of the donation and we've since researched this to see if maybe there is maybe that's true at the museum of natural history or the holocaust museum or the nixon presidential library and the answer is it's not true anywhere this is the only museum that controls historic access and there's a reason for that and that is history the way history evolves is because different people look at the same material and see different things so and that, and we you know I presumed, we presumed that 20 years from now, historians would look at our footage and go, oh, wait, you know, that, that there's information in those frames that, that, that we didn't see. And so we, we interviewed the, the former um, uh, president of the Holocaust Museum. And we said to him, you know, if I come to the Holocaust Museum and say, I want to write a book about the fact the Holocaust didn't happen, I'm a denier will will you give me access to your archive and he said absolutely 
And I said, will you ask to read my book before it's published? He said, of course not. He said, that's the nature of academic research. We are open. Anyone who wants to look at the Holocaust Museum archive has access to it. And that, that has stuck in our craw because I think our film now exposes this kind of totalitarian, nationalistic, heavy-handed DNA of the place. And that, by the way, that's, and that's fixable, right? I mean, you fix that by saying, who's the board? How did they get elected? Why don't we have more people of color? Why don't we have more people of different parts of the country? Like right now, it's all essentially, you know, a, a, a 37 people who've been there for 15 years. There's no end date to your trusteeship. Um, I think the very structure of the place should be considered. Well, and that's what you, that's what the film does show um, unintentionally, not knowing kind of what was going on in terms of um, the restrictions placed on the material, um, which is that um, it's a dark place. It's closed down. Now, most people don't understand that when they're standing on the plaza at the pools, they're standing on the roof of the building. The building goes seven stories underground. So, you know, you see this little glass structure on the plaza there, but then as you descend down into the museum, it's a whole different ball of wax. So, Anyway, um, we're, we're, we're deep in yeah. the weeds here, I know. <laughs> well, what I wanted to do was um, bring it back to the film, which was this, this tension, the headbutting that we ultimately captured um, tells that story uh, as well, not intentionally, but it, as being an indicator of kind of where the museum and the memorial is today. Yeah. So closing question, I think. Um, can you talk a bit about the reaction to the film and as you were screening it uh, before it was publicly released to some of the stakeholding groups? And as you mentioned, Mike Bloomberg is not really a character in the film at all. But when you're talking about the, these levers of change, given that, that he was a primary funder and driver of a lot of this and, and continues to have that role, does that weave real space for change over the next 20 years, uh, no matter how much different stakeholding groups might uh, individually want that. Right. So we, the film was not made for families, for survivors. Um, we didn't interview them. Um, we thought they would find the film objectionable. We were, we were honestly, I think, a little nervous about how they were going to react. Um, and we made the decision to show it to a one screen for first one screening of family members and then a couple and we pam and i introduced the screening we were very trepidatious we said there's going to be scenes here you're going to find hard to watch and you might want to shut off the screen and i mean the film played um it ended and the leader of this small group paused for a moment and then said um we just want to say thank you and we we're like Thank you. And she, she's like, this story has to be told. We're so angry at the museum. We feel so mistreated. We feel like they've taken our loved ones, unidentified remains and put them in the ships in the basement. Why are they in the basement? Why are our family members in the basement? And we were both, Pam and I were both shocked by this because we've been told for all the years we photographed that all these decisions were being made for the families. Yeah. And so this was like, <laughs> like, uh, and then we started talking to other family members, uh, in particular, Elizabeth Miller, who was an employee of the museum and who lost her father on 9-11, a firefighter. And she said, 
you know, it's it the place is unbearable for families to go to. And I'm like, so if if it's unbearable for families and historians and archivists aren't allowed to use the archive, then who is it built for? And the answer kind of by reverse engineering is tourists. It's built for tourists. It's got a ticket price. People come to New York. They have to go to the Empire State Building. They have to go to Ellis Island. They have to go to the 9-11 Museum. Um, that's not acceptable. Are you hopeful that this could change? And do you think the film could, in some sense, help change that by opening up some of these debates? I, I hope so. I hope that the, the 20th anniversary is the opportunity to say, OK, now this is actually technically becoming history. The time between 9-11 and today, it was still evolving history and it will continue to be evolving history. But I think this is a moment where it can be said, all right, this is history. What is this place? What do we want to do going forward? And, you know, as a city, as, you know, having this museum here and uh, hopefully that op this gives that chance to open up the dialogue about it. It doesn't have to remain the way it is. Uh, and, you know, our donation to the museum was valued at half a million dollars. Theoretically, we're, and we are, according to them, the largest donor of moving media in the collection. The fact that we're treated this disrespectfully and not part of the conversation and not invited to kind of explore the museum's evolution, like that, that will not stand. And so we've begun a conversation with the museum to either have them evolve their lending process or, or return our donation. Steve, Pam, thank you so much again for joining us. Uh, the film is The Outsider. You can find it now. Uh, 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 wait, wait, what's the Apple thing? It's on iTunes. Yeah, yeah. iTunes. <laughs> uh, uh, very funny. <laughs> and, thank and, you, guys. Hey, we really appreciate it. Thank you. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. Find us online at thebrick.house. We're headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. Special thank yous to our guest host, Katie Onan, our guests, Steve Rosenbaum and Pam Yoder, the makers of the new documentary, The Outsider, and to Adam Kamara, who mixed and mastered this week's episode. And thank you for listening. Please be safe, be cool, and be kind. And we'll be back next week. Bye. <laughs>